Can I ask you something? Yeah, definitely. Did you get taught anything about voting in school? Yeah, oh, I did. I've never been taught in school in the NT, nothing. Mm. Only thing we ever like learnt about any kind of voting was voting for your bloody school captain. That's about it. From Schwartz Media and 7am, I'm Ruby Jones, and this is The Vote. When Australia heads to the polls in a couple of weeks, one in five Indigenous people who are eligible to vote won't be enrolled, and so they won't be able to cast a ballot. So 60 years after First Nations people won the right to vote in Australia, why is access to democracy still a challenge? Today, 7am producer Ruby Schwartz travels to remote Australia to find out why some people are more enrolled than others. It's Wednesday, May 11. Funny question. What, what would I be seeing if it were not 9.30 at night dark? You would be seeing... So it's actually... So this is a little bit sad. So this drive is incredible. A few weeks ago, I travelled to Alice Springs in the Northern Territory. Just how much the landscape and geography changes as you drive along the Stuart Highway. I'm on a highway driving from Alice to the town of Tennant Creek with Larissa Baldwin. Larissa is a Widgibal woman in her mid-30s and the First Nations campaigns director for the activist group Get Up. Larissa grew up on country in Lismore in northern New South Wales, but... You can tell that this isn't her first time driving up the Stewart Highway. Um, so all you see now is, like, road trains with their big headlights, like this one coming towards us right now, um, and maybe some cattle, but we don't really want to see cattle. While I panic at every road train that goes past... So this is a road train? No, that was just a car with headlights on. Oh, really? Yeah. Or I think goes past, Larissa navigates the highway full of cattle, camels and impossibly long road trains with ease. Tennant Creek is 500 kilometres north of Alice, and we're still four hours away, but Larissa makes the time go fast. I was about to say, I'm, about, I'm like hearing a horror story about the fucking Stuart Highway on the Stuart Highway. It's not Wolf Creek, but the... Oh my God. Yeah, she was just like... Oh. She's funny, she has endless stories to tell, and she's a country music obsessive. After the election, I'm going to Nashville. I'm going to the country Are music you? festival. Yes, I'm very excited. So why are we heading to Tennant Creek? Well, Larissa, as part of her work with GetUp, is trying to convince Indigenous people to enrol to vote in the upcoming election. New data shows close to half of all Aboriginal people enrolled to vote in the Northern Territory failed to have their say in the May federal election. Electoral Commission estimates more than 30 percent of the territory's First Nations people who are eligible to vote aren't enrolled. Are not enrolled. Across Australia, about 97 percent of the eligible population is enrolled to vote. But when you look specifically at First Nations people, that figure drops to below 80 percent. And in the Northern Territory, it's even lower, less than 70%. And I was there because I wanted to understand how the Indigenous enrolment rate could be so comparatively low 
and what that means for the right of First Nations people to have their voice heard. Labor MP Warren Snowden has attacked the government over the low turnout after it made major cuts to the Australian Electoral Commission. I wanted to understand what might be behind these numbers. So, for me, this drive, it's part of a bigger story. A story about how well Australia's democracy is working and who it's working for. But for now, we're arriving in Tennant Creek. Spark here. Testing, testing. Um, just in Pico Park, which is on a corner. It's a hot day in Tennant Creek, 39 degrees and super dry. I find the heat so intense that I need to move slowly so that my recording gear doesn't end up drenched in sweat. I'm feeling parched immediately. <laughs> Larissa, on the other hand, wearing a T-shirt that says, we vote, all in capital letters, she moves quickly and gets straight to work. Living here in Tennant Creek, what sort of things would you like to see change? Do you think a lot of people in Tennant Creek vote? What sort of jobs do people mostly do here? What would be a good politician for Lingiari? Do you think that they get enough funding from the government to build bigger businesses? About 3,000 people live in Tennant Creek, and about half of those people identify as Indigenous. And as people from the town stop by, Larissa talks to them casually, easily, about a lot of things. Life goes up and down here. Um, It's been really, really hard. Lately, um, about the issues they'd like to see addressed in the community. The houses, housing crisis in, in Tennant and around the Barclay, I think that needs to change. And when she talks to passers-by about the upcoming federal election, it becomes pretty clear, pretty quickly, that not many people in the community know that it's just a few weeks away. A lot of people know that there's an election coming in a couple of weeks, in a few weeks. But looking at the town then, I, I don't think no-one know. Because there's no billboards or anything saying the federal election coming and get enrolled to get your vote counted. Other people that Larissa speaks to seem too disillusioned to know what to care. Like Kevin Shannon. My name's Kevin Shannon. Hello, Kevin. I'm Velda Shannon's nephew. He's an Indigenous man. He's homeless and he camps on the outskirts of Tennant Creek. And when Larissa asks him about the election... Do you think that if... um, what sort of things, what things, sort of things would change if maybe like more Aboriginal people got elected parliament? He says that he doesn't see a point in enrolling to vote. From my person, from my perspective, nobody, nothing changed. Nothing. But despite that, he stays and he talks to Larissa for a while because it's clear that people like Larissa and they want to hear what she has to say about the election. And one thing she keeps telling people about this election is that it's a particularly important one for the Northern Territory. What do you think a good, so a good politician that's going to represent Lingiari, what are the types of things, because it's, it's all up for grabs this election? She says it's all up for grabs. The federal seat of Lingiari is considered to be one of the safest Labor seats in the nation. The Northern Territory doesn't often receive much attention during federal elections, but this federal election, all eyes seem to be on the Territory. Scott Morrison has started his two-day trip to the Northern Territory here in Alice Springs. The Prime Minister kicked his unofficial election campaign off there, Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce made an appearance, and so did the opposition leader, Anthony Albanese, 
all making funding promises. Anthony Albanese will also be in the Northern Territory today, touching down in Darwin in the hours ahead. He'll be pledging $11 million to an Aboriginal... And particular attention is being paid to the seat of Lingiari, which is where Larissa and I have travelled to. In the Northern Territory, veteran Labor MP Warren Snowden's retirement means the electorate of Lingiari is a key seat to watch during the election. That's because Warren Snowden, the Labor MP who has held the seat since it was formed in 2001, is retiring. I'm a bit of a relic, uh, so I've taken the decision that I won't be contesting at the next election. And while historically Lingiari has always gone to Labor, in large part due to the Indigenous vote, the Coalition clearly sees this year as an opportunity to win the seat for the very first time. We're investing heavily in ensuring that the Northern Territory has a strong industrial future. Lingiari is geographically huge. It's bigger than France, Germany and Italy combined. And more than 40% of the voters in the electorate are Indigenous. So whether Indigenous people are enrolled in this electorate, whether they vote and who they choose to vote for, it has a big impact. driving out to Miniri, which is kind of like southeast Arnhem Land. The next stop on the enrolment drive is Miniri, a remote community of about 600 people, a few hundred kilometres southeast of Catherine. After Tennant Creek, I was left with this impression that perhaps one of the main reasons enrolment levels are so low among Indigenous people in the Northern Territory is because of a sense of disillusionment because of a lack of interest in engaging in a system that never helps them. And I wanted to see if the same would hold true for a place like Minieri. Um, this community desperately needs housing, so there's demandables out here for people who are, their houses are being fixed up and they're going into. What's so it's just like an old like school building or something that people are living in. Um, and as we drive in, a lot of the houses that we pass, they're in pretty bad shape. Overcrowding is clearly a problem. And the first person that I meet there, Naomi Wilfred, she tells me that she lives in a house of 17. How many of you in your house? I don't know, but 17, I think. 17? Yeah. She points out her home to me. It's a blue weatherboard. It looks pretty run down. I don't look inside, but it's hard to envision how 17 people could sleep in a home of that size. What's that like, living in a house with so many people? <sighs> Too much noise, grandchildren got to run around and bang in the child, you know. Oh, really bad. Naomi grew up in Minyeri. She's an Alawa elder in her mid-60s. And while she initially laughs telling me about the trials and tribulations of living in a house with so many people, it's clear that it's a problem that deeply concerns her. Because it's, it's all never been renovated. Look at this. If you were a non-Indigenous building, bang, straight away they would have done something about it. Yeah. After speaking with Naomi for a while, I start to ask her questions about voting. Thinking about voting in all of this, does it give you, I guess, like hope that you kind of have a say through voting? Like, is that something that you think... Thinking back to my conversation with Kevin Shannon, the man from Tennant Creek, I wonder if Naomi will share the same sentiment as him. 
what's the point of voting when nothing ever changes? But she doesn't. Yeah, voted for a long time. When was the first time you voted? Oh, I don't know. Um, I think back in 2010, somewhere. We want to vote because we know when we vote, we have our rights. In fact, no sooner do I ask Naomi about enrolling to vote, does she jump up and start telling everyone in sight to get more people down here, to get the young people to come and get enrolled. When I walk over to Larissa, she's filling out enrolment forms for people. OK, so we're going to hand that in for you. And then when that election comes around in six, seven weeks, you can vote anywhere you are. And over the course of the enrolment drive, the more I watch Larissa's pile of filled-out enrolment forms grow, and the more people that I talk to... Only thing we ever, like, learnt about any kind of voting was voting for a bloody school captain. The more I realise that Indigenous people in the places we visit, they do want to enrol, and they do want to vote. So why are enrolment rates so low then? It's not that... Aboriginal people don't want to vote is that Aboriginal people, because of a lot of political decisions and choices, feel very disenfranchised. Rather than enrolment levels being low because of any lack of desire to vote, Larissa attributes it to a deliberate attempt to suppress the Indigenous vote. I definitely think that it's more sinister and that people are actually doing this because they want to remain in power. And I don't think that the government can see a win for them in a seat like Lingyari if the bush is actually turning out and voting. According to Larissa, low levels of enrolment in Indigenous communities, it's no accident. It's by design. And actually what needs to change is is our electoral laws need an overhaul uh, because right now our electoral laws have made the conditions for this to happen. We'll be back after this. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest, Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Recent news of alleged voter suppression in some key races has many wondering if they're still able to cast their ballots. Voter suppression isn't a term you often hear in Australia. Most of the time, it comes up in conversations about the political system in the United States. Basically, what it is, is the attempt to keep voter registration and turnout of certain communities low. Overwhelmingly African-American, Latino, Asian-American, young and poor. When we begin to look at these voter suppression laws, that's the group that is targeted. Through things like forcing voters to show ID before they vote, 
and limiting options for when and where voters can actually cast their ballot. On election nights, we often focus on who's voting. But Alabama's strict voter ID rules could shape tonight's race based on who didn't vote. Republicans added these photo ID rules in 20... Of course, voting systems in the United States and Australia are different. Namely, we have compulsory voting, they don't. And that provides our vote with a certain level of protection. And it's a big reason why our enrolment rates are generally so high. But no system is perfect. And a prime example of that is the fact that voting in this country is compulsory, yet less than 70% of Indigenous people in the Northern Territory are on the roll. And I wanted to dig into what Larissa said about voter suppression. I wanted to understand if there are similar measures in place in Australia to restrict the Indigenous vote. And when you look at the history, similarities start to appear when you look back to the Howard years. In fact, to John Howard's very first year in power. Yeah, and I, and I miss the politics of it all, having been so involved in it. Uh, yeah. Everything seems quite... Uh... That's Norm Kelly. He's an academic and former Australian politician. He's based in New Zealand now, but over the years he's written extensively about John Howard's reforms to the Australian electoral system. And uh, author of the uh, Directions in Australian Electoral Reform uh, book. Uh, And in Norm's book, he writes that when John Howard was first elected in 1996, one of the first things he did as Prime Minister was abolish the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Election Education and Information Service, or ATSIUS. ATSIUS was an arm of the Australian Electoral Commission, and one of its main aims was to increase Indigenous enrolment. And they were quite uh, successful in being able to increase voter enrolment and increase uh, voting at elections. Not only did Howard's decision to abolish ATSIA see enrolment rates decrease, it was also the first time the Australian Electoral Commission, an independent authority, had ever been instructed by government on how to direct its budget. It was a big deal. So it was seen as government interference, and you could say political interference because of the implications that removing that service would have. But for the next nine years... The Howard government didn't really make any significant changes to the electoral system. That was until 2004, when the Howard government won the Senate and the House of Representatives in a landslide victory. The size of the victory would give John Howard enormous authority within his own party. Not long after that, the Howard government introduced the Electoral and Referendum Amendment Bill. The bill removed the right of prisoners to vote, It made it easier to conceal political donations. And the government's justification for introducing the bill was to stop supposed voter fraud. Now, I was absolutely astounded to hear and read some of the uh, speeches of opposition senators suggesting that electoral fraud does not exist in this country. At the time the bill was making its way through the Senate, Liberal Senator Erica Betts said voter fraud was a big issue. According to Abetz, even a pet cat was involved in the scheme to rot our electoral system. And of course, we've got the case of Curacao Fisher Cat, thank you, Senator Ferris, who was enrolled in the seat of Macquarie, was able to get onto the electoral roll by fraud and misrepresentation. The bill would eliminate voter fraud by introducing two new requirements. 
The first change meant that potential voters would have less time to enrol once the election was called. According to the government, that was to stop people changing what seat they lived in in order to try sway the outcome of the election. The other measure was to introduce new proof of identity requirements, which would prevent people from doing things like enrolling twice or supposedly enrolling their cats. If you can get a cat onto the electoral roll, chances are you can get anybody on the electoral roll and you can then... The bill passed in 2006. The thing is, though, at the time the bill was introduced and passed, voter fraud in Australia was virtually non-existent. You can hear Labor Senator Kim Carr interjecting during Erica Betts' speech in Parliament to make this point. Senator Carr is saying there have only been 71 cases of voter fraud since 1990. This is in 2006, by the way, so in 16 years. He's saying the chance of it happening, one in a million. Because they find one in a million, one in a million opportunities where people have done the wrong thing with the electoral laws, 432,000 Australians should be disenfranchised. Rather than stopping voter fraud, there were concerns that these new requirements would instead stop a lot of people from voting. And of course... The government knows that of the 432,000 Australians disadvantaged, most of them vote Labor. Particular concern was raised about how this would impact Indigenous people, who are far less likely to have proof of identification than the rest of the population. They're also more likely to live remotely, which makes meeting strict enrolment deadlines really challenging. By the time Howard left office in 2007 there were 1.2 million Australians left off the roll. And last year, the Morrison government tried to make voting even harder. The Prime Minister has the Mr Speaker, I'll ask the Special Minister of State to address the the bill that has been... When the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, tried to introduce the Voter ID Bill to Parliament... People who go to vote should be able to say who they are and prove who they are, Mr Speaker, in a, in a democracy. And, 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 Mr Speaker, this is policies that are pursued... A bill that would go even further than the Howard Laws did on identification, requiring people to present an ID at the polling booths in order to vote. And the rationale for it? With a democratic process which has integrity. And the same... Electoral integrity and reducing the risk of voter fraud. And yet, the risk of voter fraud is still, in the words of the Australian Electoral Commission, vanishingly small. Instead, once again, the people most likely to suffer as a result of this legislation are the Indigenous, the young, the poor. Isn't the only reason the Prime Minister is doing this is to deny many Australians a vote, particularly those from remote communities? While the bill didn't pass, I should also note that in 2017, Scott Morrison, as Treasurer, made cuts to the Northern Territory Electoral Commission, a decision that would almost certainly impact Indigenous enrolment. So a clear pattern is emerging. And whether or not the intention of the legislation and cuts is to limit the Indigenous vote, I can't know, but the outcome is clear. And while the Australian Electoral Commission says that it continues to make significant efforts to engage Indigenous communities and that the Indigenous enrolment rate has seen year-on-year growth for the past five years, the cuts the Coalition has made and the legislation that they have passed and tried to pass doesn't make the efforts to increase Indigenous enrolment any easier. 
it does change the demographics of electorates and the boundaries of electorates. And it has a massive flow on impact in the space of what, not even five years from those cuts. And so that disenfranchisement, like in people's lifetimes, is, is almost immediate. You know, this demographic of the community to hold the government accountable or be represented is, is significantly diminished. When I asked Larissa about this in the car on the way back to Darwin, on the final stretch of the drive, she doesn't mince her words. Do you see it as a form of kind of voter suppression? I absolutely see it as voter suppression and I think that we should be more forward in calling it that. And I think we just have to call it for what it is. It's racism and it's voter suppression. So if voter suppression is happening in Australia, what can be done? Well, through reporting this story, I learnt about one Indigenous man who is taking this fight on. And so, of course, when I arrive in Darwin, the next thing I do is jump on a plane to visit him. I've just boarded the flight to Manangrida, which is in West Arnhem Land. I'm going to visit Matthew Ryan there, who's the mayor of the West Arnhem Regional Council. Um, I'm going to go speak to him about voter suppression in remote Indigenous communities um, because of the complaint that he's lodged to the Australian Human Rights Commission about this very issue. So, yeah, I'm very excited to meet him and hear what he has to say. In tomorrow's episode, Ruby travels to the north coast of Arnhem Land to speak to Manangrida's mayor to find out what made him take on the policies at the heart of our enrolment process. That's tomorrow on The Vote. Anyway, we're just refuelling now, so it shouldn't be long till we go. This reporting was made possible through the Melbourne Press Club and the Michael Gordon Fellowship. In a statement, the Australian Electoral Commission said its efforts have led to the Indigenous enrolment rate increasing every year for the last five years. The Commission specifically pointed to partnerships it's made with over 70 Indigenous organisations, 21 educational videos produced in Indigenous languages and other enrolment initiatives. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, the Northern Territory's Chief Minister, Michael Gunner, has announced his shock resignation saying, my head and my heart are no longer in the job. Gunnar, who led Labor to victory in 2016, cited the birth of his second child just over a week ago as the reason for wanting to spend more time at home. And notably absent MP Alan Tudge has been found by a Sky News reporter on the campaign trail in his electorate. The Education Minister said he doesn't know why the Department of Finance had decided to pay $500,000 of compensation to his former staffer, Rochelle Miller. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.